0: My daddy was a minor, and I'm a minor's son.
1: He'll be with Welcome to the Damnificast, a podcast about the TV show Damnation. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in
2: Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois.
1: And this week on the show, we also have our good friend, Josh Christensen. Josh, why don't you introduce yourself?
0: Hey, everybody. It's, It's me, Josh. Uh been been a while since i've been on here um but go way back with these guys episode uh, three was the last time you're on so uh it's yeah been a, it's been a lot Ooh, that yeah that's that's been a few years there um yeah uh i don't know i guess i i, I i'm not entirely sure why they asked me to be on but i like movies <laughs> uh this show seems to be right up my sort of aesthetic alley uh and uh yeah, I'm a worker, so there's that. Um, and, and also, a, a, fellow, a, a brother of the pod, I also podcast. Uh, it is about movies. It's called Odd Splice. Um, check it out.
1: Yeah, so you might, like we were just saying, remember Josh all the way back from episode three when we talked about war and cinema, got some of Josh's really good cinematic takes. Uh, and we're <laughs> excited to have you back. Uh, Josh and I were roommates for a little while at a very bizarre evangelical school. And uh, I'm glad that we both got out of that situation. And now, you know, we're both way into um, socialism and thinking about this TV show tonight. So that's what we're going to do. Before we get there, though, I don't know if everyone got a chance to listen to our recent episode where we interviewed Tony Toast, the creator of Damnation. But if you haven't, you should. Uh, However, one thing that Tony said, we asked him about a season two for Damnation. And he said, tragically, that ship seems to have sailed in perpetuity. But it lives on in our imaginations, and he gave us some uh, some suggestive ways in which the show might turn out uh, over the course of five seasons. So, because Tony said it lives on in our imaginations, we thought we'd take an opportunity, just before we dive in here, to think through, you know, if we could come up with a, a season two of Damnation, what would our imaginations, in fact, produce? And so, in this episode, uh, just at the top, we're going to pitch a few characters that we think could really populate this world here in Iowa um so Matt you've been you've been sitting on one you said earlier so let's have it who who should enter this world of damnation
2: okay so i have an idea it's not a good one but it's definitely an idea okay so damnation is a period piece it's gritty it's got violence it's got labor struggle and i think that really do, it, it does pretty well appealing to a very specific sort of demographic but i think that if we added a few other characters it could open the show up to even like a larger demographic. So here's my pitch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, we can, maybe we can even like, we can workshop it a little bit here too, because it's probably not perfect. Um, so we need a, um, we need like a, a family, I think in this with a sort of smart aleck kid that has a good, like a good catch, a good catchphrase. What do mm-hmm. you guys think about yeah, that? that okay. Hard. And here's the, and here's the other twist too. They're animated. So what I'm saying here is that I want the <laughs> Simpsons to be in this show. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So a real Bart Simpson's type going to uh, Pastor Seth's church.
2: That's yeah. Safe. It's it. So it would actually be exactly like the Simpsons, but instead of going to the church that they go to, they go to Pastor Seth's, and Homer's there, and he is probably a farmer. Um, his name's not <laughs> Homer in this one though. It's something different. Uh, and you know, there's the farm strike, and Calvin Rumples out there doing his thing. Martinegger's hide, he's out there being the bad guy, and Bart is just telling them to all eat his shorts. And I think this is a good idea that has some real legs to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like it already because Bart could say, have a cow man and it would just mean something totally different. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all right. <laughs> See, now that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Yeah. That's uh, uh Bart inviting everybody to, you know, share, share the wealth, I suppose. Uh, just have a cow. That's right. Uh, that was a half-formed thought, but uh, fascism uh, <laughs> is where
2: the government uh, takes the cows from you and shoots you, and communism is uh, where you have a cow, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I've seen that meme. Um, all right, all right. I think that's good. We'll keep thinking about it. We'll we'll think about it over the you know the next few episodes here and just see where we can plug in this um, animated family. Um, there's a lot of copyright, so clearly we'd have to come up with a different last name. Uh, just a couple of. of Of odd things that couldn't be traceable, Uh, but also Uh, think about this episode.
2: Yeah, but I mean, like people are all about crossovers these days. You know, you got the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and uh, this, and then this time you got uh, the USA TV universe and the Fox. (laughs) uh, It's a good idea. I don't know what. I don't know. I think it's fine. The lawyers can figure it out.
0: I I think how we can get around this, uh, Sart Bimson.
2: That's right.
1: That's right. Uh, and, and he gets that name even in the crossover. We could do this. So either way, we can do it. He gets the name by going through that time warp where everybody's names get swapped around. So you've got, you know, uh, Summer Henson, um Sarge. <laughs> uh, it's pretty complicated, but they'll figure it out. Yeah, I think yeah.
2: that makes sense to me. OK, so he would tell everyone just to eat his shorts and he would skateboard on over. All of the labor struggles. So, what do you guys think? What are your really good ideas that are definitely as good as mine? <laughs> I,
0: I think I think I have two. And uh, weirdly enough, I'm not drawing on other media tropes, but uh, other like political types, and specifically a couple kinds of guys uh, that have sort of cropped up uh, and gained prominence, um, especially during the Trump administration, which feels like a weird throwback to the days of robber barons. So. Uh, so basically, uh, let's take, a, like a dueling pair. That's basically Mike Cernovich and Eric Garland <laughs> and put them in, uh, in, in that town in Iowa. Um, and so like, uh, the Cernovich character would be like a patent medicine guy, even though I think patent medicines were over by the thirties. I'm, I'm not sure on the historical timeline, but he'd be trying to like hawk weird. Um, drinks that make your brain good um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and then that sounds, that sounds like a natural and for you uh you're right but then he's like trying to hang out with the black legion guys but they all think he's weird uh, <laughs> and then uh, and then we've got uh like an eric garland type who I don't know. He'd just be hopped up on amphetamines the whole time and like nailing these giant scrolls of like butcher paper with screeds like (laughs) onto the church door or something. And he'd be like, you know, like, uh, you know, posting stuff about how he hates the Black Legion, but maybe we shouldn't listen to Pastor Seth either. Uh, And um I don't know, like I, I think two episodes in, he just gets like uh, beaten to death with a crowbar.
2: <laughs> all right. Yeah, so sounds good. Yeah, yeah. You found a way to add more violence and make the show more appealing to more people. So that's great. <laughs> I appreciate it. And you yeah, didn't even have uh, an animated family and that's pretty wild to me. So, OK,
0: right. I don't know. Yeah. I think it's just, uh, yeah, getting more broken brained uh, Chapo fans to like things. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that one untapped demographic. Um, all right. Here's mine. I've got one. Uh, it's, a, it's another religious character because I find it a bit strange that there's only one church in all of this small town in Iowa. Uh, and it's going to be a fellow by the name of Father McGrady, uh, an extremely old and very, very wholesome Catholic priest. And I feel like just in this incredibly seedy world that Tony Toast has so brilliantly woven together for us, there just needs to be a big, bumbling old priest who uh, just mumbles Latin everywhere he goes. Um, He's like a bit senile. He's sort of saying mass in the middle of the field. Um, He's not quite clear on what's going on. Uh, There's maybe two people that go to his church. Um, And I I just think that we need a a way to kind of tone some of this down a little more comic relief. You know, a big a big Pooh Bear Catholic priest would really draw this world out a little further.
2: Okay, I'm into it. Just some just some like gentle comic asides. Right. Uh, Yeah, I'm into it. Hey, what if we replaced? Okay, so Connie Nunn, she's got this child that she's kidnapped, right? Brittany is her name. What if we replace mm. Brittany with like an animatronic talking dinosaur? And uh and there's like, I'm the baby, gotta love me. And that's the part of, that's what they add to the show.
1: Yeah, I think they <laughs> could probably find that puppet somewhere.
2: Yeah, I think oh, so too. Shit.
0: Yeah, just uh, du- dust it anything. off. Yeah, pi- <laughs> pop it it's in. He's living uh... in a shameful
1: retirement right now. <laughs> oh, God, I am looking for that they... comeback.
0: There's a, oh man, I'm sure there's like a a Raiders of the Lost Ark style warehouse somewhere that just has like a, like every concept animatronic suit up to and including the final production models, and it's probably horrifying.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, it's not like they can just uh, take apart the dinosaurs. Right. Uh, that's I mean, the, that's custom
0: work. You can't really like... Yeah, you can't use that on anything else. It's it's you like know, their
1: their skins are hanging on meat hooks somewhere, or they've <laughs> just been like gutted in the worst possible way. Oh, Both no. are terrible fates.
2: Oh boy. Okay. Well. i right. Uh, I'm gonna just keep trying to work in '90s uh, characters into the show, so we need to move on, or else I'll just you keep yeah. going.
1: <laughs> I think that's good. All right. Um, well, here we are, episode three of Damnation. Still good. Still great. Still still Tony toasty still toasty uh really liking it um i'm gonna go ahead and read the wikipedia summation of this episode uh because like we said last time there's some other summaries but wikipedia is you know just just a good economy gets all the high points and puts some things on the table and reminds us all of what's actually going on in this show so here it goes amelia questions seth about the strikebreaker and its past but seth tries to divert her attention Calvin Rumpel has been has begun foreclosing and auctioning off farms, including the farm of the late striker leader the late strike leader, Sam Riley. Creeley and Bessie, as a blossoming interracial couple that's well, a little weird, Wikipedia, but it's fine. Come to the attention of the racist Black Legion who ambush them and take Creeley hostage. Amelia comes up with a plan for saving the Riley family farm, painting cigar boxes to look like Bibles and hiding weapons inside of them. The Black Legion string up Creeley in a noose in a shed and tell him to leave town with Bessie. In Ohio, we learn that Connie Nunn has taken in Brittany, the orphan daughter of the Kentucky Miner Strike leader, and is grooming her to be her daughter and protege. Connie informs Brittany that her husband Leonard was tied up in a burning car in Arkansas and burned to death. Bessie tracks down Creeley's location and guilts her father, Sheriff Berryman, into rescuing Creeley from the Black Legion... Seth, Amelia, and the farmers str- smuggle weapons in their fake Bibles during the Riley Farm auction and threaten the auctioneer and potential buyers, allowing Martha Riley to buy back her farm for one penny. Afterwards, Seth tells Amelia that the young woman in the photograph is named Cynthia Jo Rainey and that Creeley is responsible for her death.
2: Man, a lot of stuff happened in this episode. As it, I mean, I guess like every episode, but uh, this one seems particularly <laughs> packed full of action.
0: Yeah, it does. Hell yeah, dog.
2: So, uh, Josh, maybe you can start us off. What's your, what's your big hot take about this episode? Um, what, uh, what sticks out to you? What did you really like? What maybe didn't you like? Um, yeah, I don't think there was anything about this
0: episode that I didn't like. Um, it, I, it has a very audacious opening, um, that I think really builds up on a lot of, a lot of themes that are introduced in the first two episodes. Uh, I don't know, that shot of like the uh, with the kids playing baseball and like, honey, go get the cream sodas. And then the wife <laughs> goes into the garage and it's all the like Black Legion stuff when there's like nooses hanging up. And she goes out and it's just that like, you know, searchers uh, doorframe shot. And then just to hit the nail on the head, the guy's like, if this ain't the American dream, I don't know what is, you know, <laughs> like.
2: um Yeah, it's some- a, it's a pretty incredible scene, actually. It's a great way to open Uh, open this specific episode I mean the Black Legion was introduced in the last one and now we get even um, even get more about them and like what they're doing and how they work but it's just like a it's a good um, a good opening that shows sort of like the I don't know uh, ways that white supremacy are just ingrained into the culture at the time and you know still are I guess
1: yeah uh I like it so much because I think a lot of people think back on the Quan as kind of a collection of cartoon characters. Like yeah. none of them are actually real people. They're all, I don't know, just like bizarre imagined, you know, villains uh in in the past. But yeah, what this episode does so well is just showcase uh the Black Legion as completely and totally average, like like disturbingly well, normal.
0: Yeah, or uh or operating off of like a very specific idea of normal. Um yeah yeah right because like as far as we know all the black legion guys are like small business owners um, <laughs> right. like you know it's like the butcher shop or I, I don't know who the guy in the first scene was but like uh we had the guy who was the butcher the last time and like uh when dl was interviewing people it was like all the people were like i don't like it i got a i got a business i got children to feed you know and it's always like uh going back to this ideal of a nuclear family and sort of these like self-made men. uh, I don't know where I was going with that, but like, I don't know. Contrasting those guys with the, the farmers who are sort of uh, independent in their own way, but you know, are seen as like lower class and sort of like a necessary uh, unpleasantness that sort of undergirds this uh, idealized sort of middle-class rural life
1: yeah for sure yeah it's crazy too because i think uh when he says to his wife um go get that cream soda or whatever uh she's like we can't afford that and he makes that sort of um aside about how well maybe you know a case just fell off the truck or whatever um it's funny because there's something before you know that they're horrible white supremacists or whatever there's something kind of like cheeky about it and there's a whole uh i don't know um i mean it it just captures like americana right even down to like the dad who always plays by the rules playing baseball except for like every once in a while he doesn't and he gets a treat for his family like everything about it is so well executed um and it drives home too that he ends up being the black legion member uh in the latter part of the episode who actually removes his mask and directly threatens creely all right um so it's a great opener it really sets the tone for what's at stake in the town uh, but I want to talk about a scene, actually, Josh, that you said uh, you were really into when we were just chatting about the episode casually beforehand, and that's the scene in the beginning with the sheriff and his dog. Uh, so Matt and I Uh-oh. both have kind of just, I don't know, left the sheriff to his own devices for the first couple of episodes. We didn't really find a whole lot to talk about with respect to him, um, but he's resonating with you. So uh, lay it out. Why, why is he great? Why is this scene so great?
0: Well I'll, I'll break it down. I have a lot of affection for that actor. Uh I was obsessed with an a, uh another western show uh but it was on AMC called Hell on Wheels uh which was AMC's attempt to try and, you know, get that Deadwood shine. Um and it mostly misstepped, but Christopher Heyerdahl, who plays the sheriff in this played uh a character named The Swede who was like a railroad enforcer uh, and he was kind of scary and he had like a weird uh religious um sort of experience throughout the course of the show and he was just like really good in that role uh so this is him like playing more straight americana but a more i don't know corrupt individual um but yeah he seems like really extraneous to kind of the the bigger forces at play like the the bank and the farmers he's just kind of in the middle and it's uh and The reason he's boring is actually why I kind of like him. Like he's another just self-interested party who just thinks so small scale and has a lot of leeway just in this town, but really doesn't understand what's arrayed against him at all. Um, And so I feel like this scene underscores that where he's like, you know, he's talking himself up, but he's just talking to his dog like. It's like it's like this big like character moment. We think we're talking to he's talking to somebody else important, but it's just him alone in his house talking about how awesome he is to his dog. Uh,
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that the Sheriff Berryman is I don't I don't think he's boring necessarily. I just don't think that the just the interesting stuff hasn't happened to him yet, really. Uh, I don't want to give any spoilers. For, for Sheriff Sheriff Berryman and for the show in general. But, like, some things happen with him, and he becomes a little bit more of a – I mean, his character develops over time, and, you know, he's involved in some of the action later on, and it gets pretty cool. Um, but so far, I mean, he is pretty complex. There's a lot of things going on with him, right? We know that, um, you know, Bessie's his, his like, I guess, illegit- illegitimate daughter – there, he was married to someone else right there's this um in that scene where he's talking to his dog i think um there's a picture of a, a a woman on his like side table and he kind of you know puts it down he's listening to this uh record that might be uncharacteristic of uh you know sort of like a clearly like a black woman singing that might be uncharacteristic of music you listen to for some reason. It's actually important, but anyways, there, these like little things kind of build up with uh sheriff Berryman's character that um, at first don't seem like much, but then kind of sp- like snowball into something a little bit more later on. So, okay. He's boring now, but he gets a little bit better and more interesting. I think. <laughs> uh,
1: one thing I do like about him is he's kind of profoundly lonely in an, in an interesting way. Um, and it, that hadn't occurred to me until Josh was just sort of describing a little bit more of that scene with the dog. Uh, it's interesting because he, like you were just saying, Josh is is totally unaware of all the stuff that's going around. But he's kind of duped himself into, or I guess he believes his own posturing in a certain sense as the sheriff of town. Um, and he's he postures really well, but he's also trying to mitigate all these different interests. And he keeps repeating this line that, like, it's an election year, so he can't piss off the farmers and he can't piss off the bankers. Uh, he's just trying to you know keep his head down until he gets elected to his job once again, even though I mean, I can't imagine anyone challenging him <laughs> for it. That doesn't seem to be a, a huge threat. So, uh, yeah, there is a, a profound sense of loneliness about him that is kind of intriguing. I don't know if it's sympathetic, but it's something that is. Uh, yeah, he plays it well. I believe it anyway.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, I, just thinking about how that character would be portray- portrayed in just about anything else, like every scene would be him like being tough and abusing minions and like uh disappearing people and doing i mean we did get a scene of him torturing a guy right. but like like every scene would be like oh look how mean and nasty this guy is like and then they'd set him up for like sort of a face turn or something at the end like uh here's this but but now we're just getting like okay so he's like a dumb mean guy but he's really lonely and you know uh was in love with a black woman at some point in his life, which gives him these like other sympathies. And it's a interesting way to humanize that character without really like excusing how awful he is either.
2: Yeah. It's probably also a good time too, to bring up some of the other stuff that's going on in the background of Sh- Sheriff Berryman. So he it's like, you know, he owns like the, the speakeasy cause it's like a prohibition era show. Uh, and there's like a, like a casino going on. he also owns the, like the brothel too. So, um, there are those things kind of like running in the background too, right? He's like this <laughs> angry, angry, dumb, regular guy, but also kind of like duplicitous in this really interesting way where he's keeping law on the one hand, but also, um, breaking the law as well. So, yeah,
0: he well, he gets to have yeah. his little fiefdom, right? Yeah, you know? yeah,
2: <laughs> he thinks he's
0: both in power, but like subject to powers. Um, I don't know. The interesting thing about him is that he really has no idea or awareness of, like, how insignificant he is.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally, because he thinks that is out to get him or something. And, you know, turns out that's not the case.
0: Right, yeah, he has, uh, he he can't conceptualize on a systemic level when he's surrounded by all these people that only think in systemic terms, right? Mm.
1: Yeah, he's also, I think, got an interesting philosophy as part of the show. Like, he has a couple of asides where he's talking about desire and uh, saying something to the effect of, you know, sometimes people gotta uh, let some impulses out that we don't really like. And that's, like, totally fine as long as we contain it. And that's kind of how he sees himself, as, like, the big container of everything. So, like, he, you know, when he goes to rescue Creeley from the Black Legion... Uh, He intentionally like tell he announces uh, that he doesn't want to know who any of them are and uh, they don't want him to know who they are either. So he's kind of like willing to just sort of let them, you know, have their like white supremacist terrorism as long as they like respect the law. Um, And so far, it's also the same with the farmers, like they're free to you know, so far do whatever they want, as long as they're sort of within a, a reasonable bound. Uh, and Creeley is the problem. He becomes the outlier because he doesn't seem to be containable. And that's sort of the threat. Uh, so as bad as the Black Legion are, or, you know, strikers are or whatever, um, they're all somewhat, uh, well, he, he at least feels that they're containable. Um, and that's kind of just an interesting piece of, of the puzzle of the show that, uh, you know, the sheriff is, is our window into how the law actually works in the labor struggle and here it's uh, just completely unable to really understand the terms because it's, you know, it sees its role as something really bizarre.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, before we go too much further, why don't we take a step back and talk about Creeley and Bessie? Because that uh, to talk more about Sheriff Berryman and kind team going on with him, we need to talk about what happens to them in this episode. So um, pretty early on, uh, there's.
0: Oh, they do the sex.
2: Well, yeah. They do. They do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the first scene in, in the episode of Creeley and Creeley and Bessie is Creeley giving Bessie a dress and then them having sex. Yeah. So after that, though, Creeley and Bessie uh, meet up with Seth, uh, Amelia, all of the farmers or not all the farmers, but uh, Seth and Amelia, at least at a farm auction. Right. And like basically they're auctioning off all of this um family's stuff you know not just their farm but also like their family bible and everything else right so this the scene is really interesting that it unfolds because um this woman uh this woman who you know formerly owned a farm um all of her things are being sold by the bank and it's like this pretty heartbreaking and i mean irrational scene because it's like clearly it's this woman's you know belongings and like the bank is just selling them like it's nothing um And especially
0: that, uh, yeah, that family Bible, like, uh, I semi recently like inherited one of those that has belonged to my, uh, like my dad's side of the family for like a hundred some years or something. And it's like, yeah, uh, (laughs) you can't, you can't put a price on that. I mean, it's just Mm. an absolute, like, uh,
2: yeah, it's a huge, yeah. it's a huge deal. Like my family has one too, and it sits, you know, on the shelf at my mom's house. And it's like ridiculous to think that like the bank would just take that and and sell it to somebody for like you know almost nothing. It's uh, that I guess that's right, yeah. that whole scene seems so silly to me because it's like, is the bank really like that heartless? Is it really that like stupidly evil? And at least, I mean, it's in my own life, it seems like yes, the answer is yes. But in yeah. the show, definitely <laughs> so. Um. Well, but the interesting thing that happens in that, in that scene is that like um like Seth and Amelia are trying to help this woman buy the Bible so at least she has something, right? And like there's like this dumb bidding war going on. Um it's not it's it's dumb because like someone else is trying to outbid them for the Bible. And then Creeley just kind of like walks walks in and like, you know, pays $40 for the Bible and gives it to the woman in sort of like an act of goodwill or whatever, right? Like a he says at the end of the scene like an, it's an act of public relations. Um on, on behalf of the bank or something and um it's at that point where uh we get the racist black legion dad uh who spots uh creeley and bessie uh leaving the auction together right and that's um mm-hmm. right after that the uh right after that Bessie and um Creeley both get confronted on the road by like a big group of black legion folks and creeley gets uh man man napped is the word i'll use yep.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs>
2: Creeley ain't no kid. Right. He's not so, he's no kid, that's true. But it's a it's an interesting point because uh Bessie I mean he tells Bessie, you know, if things go if things go sideways, just uh, hit the gas pedal and get out of here.
0: Yeah, you got a gun and a gas <laughs> pedal. <laughs> Use them. Yeah, uh so it's it's well established that Logan Marshall Green who plays Creeley, is the American knockoff Tom Hardy. Um, yeah absolutely (laughs) and i don't like that scene and then later uh when he's in the uh the barn with the uh with the black legion guys and they're hanging are the closest he's actually gotten to sounding (laughs) like being tom hardy (laughs) (laughs) like
1: there are a Um, couple like mad max scenes for sure
2: yeah yep well, that seems uh, particularly good, I think, for the the Bessie Creeley story, because, okay, so they, I mean, they have sex before that, for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's this like this kind of like, tender moment where Creeley gives her a dress, and that's significant as well. But uh, it's in this moment, you know, Bessie drives away and kind of gets away from like, the immediate bad stuff. And then she's kind of wrestling with like, what Creeley actually means to her and like, whether or not she should go back. And at first, she's like, you know, he's just another guy, whatever, who cares. And then uh, she ends up enlisting Sheriff Berryman her dad to, to go, uh, to go get him to go rescue that man napped Creeley. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, yeah. Having just, uh, uh, as of this recording, listened to the listening to the, uh, Tony toast, uh, interview immediately before watching the episode. Uh, (laughs) yeah, it, it really like, uh, hammered home that his intention that their relationship is like, finding soulmates but in the midst of this like transactional thing so yeah for whatever reason he's like oh okay so i'm paying your way like we don't really know like the core reason he wants to protect her could be self-interest uh but there is a sense that he he is developing feelings for her, and then it's like okay this man just like basically signed his own death warrant uh to protect me well what does that mean and then just having to yeah figure that out on the fly and uh yeah uh sick your uh your sheriff uh half de- you can't be a half dad
1: uh dad <laughs> he's kind of half full dad.
2: full dad uh full dad like uh, questionable responsibility i suppose yeah
1: yeah. yeah
2: yeah uh in in a
0: legal sense actual father uh in and- yeah
2: but uh, those three together, I mean, like, you know, th- this plays up. OK, so it plays up the sort of like mounting romance between Bessie and Karely and like what all of that actually means, you know, going from like um, the, you know, the relationship between like sex worker and, you know, person buying sex worker for a moment. And then like... Um, and then like you know what the evolution from that into like maybe like a real relationship where they actually care for one another and then also adding sheriff berryman into the mix too with um his relationship with bessie so there's just like lots of moving parts in like um the probably emotions these people are feeling and like what these things mean but it's a it's a good moment where all of a sudden um things kind of fall into place a little bit for those three folks um and it's a interesting thing so uh we get to see sheriff berryman you know doing something good for Bessie and that's uh, apparently a, a rare occasion
1: yeah uh I think that's probably my favorite thing about episode three so far I mean there's lots of really cool uniony stuff that we'll talk about in a minute uh but what I like about this is we're able to figure out how some of these relationships work uh beyond just being introduced to the same um expressions of the characters that we get in the first and second episode just because there's like no time in those episodes to really develop it so you get some really like intriguing links, uh, between the sheriff, between Creeley and Bessie, but also like, um, uh, Della, the madam of the, um, the whorehouse there. Like there's so many layers of interest there, right? Like she has this interesting confrontation with Bessie where she's kind of peeping on Bessie and, uh, Creeley for the sheriff and Bessie calls her on it. And that's like a whole thing. Um, and then, Della goes to confront Sheriff Berryman at the jail right which is also a whole uh dramatic sort of uh, confrontation with lots of subtext that we don't really know yet um and I like that a lot about this episode like there's a lot more uh, depth to some of these characters. And I feel like I'm able to, um, I feel like I'm not just waiting around for another like explosive strikey scene. Uh, I'm kind of like slowly getting invested <laughs> in, in all the right. rest of the stuff.
2: Well, she brings him a, a literal poop sandwich. So I don't know how you couldn't yeah. be yep. interested.
1: <laughs> what,
0: oh God, what was the line? Uh, yeah, school superintendent from the county over just paid my girls however much to pinch <laughs> this off in front of
1: them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's good. Yeah, I do like, uh, very I like this. Um,
0: can I... I just just a tangent um so all of all of the women cast in this show i i get it from their performances i think they're having the time of their lives with these characters like i don't know i i just get a lot of like they're just relishing getting to like do this uh you know really pulpy genre dialogue in a period piece and you know they get these meaty characters with all these uh motivations and they're not just playing like straight types in a period drama. Um, So I really appreciate that about this show. It does
1: seem like everyone's having a good time with it.
2: Um, Can I make a quick intervention here? It's been 30 minutes and we have not talked about socialism yet. And I feel like we need to. Oh,
1: it's off. Okay.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, That's
2: the the rule with most of our content (laughs) is that you got to talk about (laughs) socialism at least once every 30 minutes. Um, Okay. So, Leading up to all of this, we have like so the show is called this episode is called One Penny, right? And it opens with um, uh, a farm auction and like the farm auction going extremely poorly. Um, And then uh, we find out from sort of like a a nice like um, flyer that I think Pastor Seth has or whoever that uh, the Riley's farm is next up on the block to be auctioned off. And this is pretty significant, um, well, because, you know, Sam Riley got shot in the very first episode and that's a bummer. Um, but it's also significant too, because Martha Riley is like, um, is, is a character who, you know, was seemingly just like sort of suspicious of Pastor Seth, but has really come around to the cause of the union and also to Sam Riley's politics. Uh, we didn't really get a chance to talk about this very much in episode two, but, um, there's this really interesting scene where uh, Martha Riley is talking to Amelia about uh, Sam's body being nailed up. And um, at at first you think that Martha is like incredulous or going to be like really pissed that like this happened, but then she's like, no, this is the best. Like, this is um, like, you know, she's like, uh, this is what Sam would have wanted. uh, And this is what I want. I want like to, I want to get these people for like what they did to Sam and um Martha Riley kind of gets like you know she's she's more than just a farmer's wife or, or a suspicious church lady now she's kind of like throwing in with the union and um since that's the case the union's definitely going to back her up so uh, when it comes to uh when it comes to auction off their house um Pastor Seth and Amelia formulate a plan so do you guys want to explain what that plan was
0: <laughs> uh <laughs> yeah this this shit absolutely owns i'll just say that it's uh, so good up top it's uh what um yeah so they start uh they get all the uh farmers uh together and start painting cigar boxes to look like bibles um and start hiding weapons in them uh and then show up to the Riley farm auction saying, Hey, we're just here to pray for the farm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, And we're just armed with the good word. Uh, And then uh, as the auction begins, uh, Martha Riley puts in a bid of one penny and then all the farmers with their cigar box Bibles uh, take out their weapons and just, you know, basically threaten to just murder everybody at the auction if they speak.
1: Yeah, it's really fascinating for a lot of reasons. Um, probably the most fascinating thing to me about it is that although it is a hyperbolic expression in the show, for sure, um, the idea of a penny auction is based in actual history. And also, I didn't know this, but based in the history of the Farmers Holiday Association, which the uh, the events are somewhat um, based on. Uh, and I think that's pretty wild. So like the idea of a penny auction was kind of more in line with the beginning of the show, except that it fails in the first few scenes. So the idea is that, um, a bunch of the farmers, if a farmer was having their farm foreclosed on would come around and chip in to try to buy everything back, which is right. What they're trying to do in the very beginning. So like pestis, that's like, I've got a few bucks and everybody else is doing it. But they just like, can't match the, the bank. Um, and so, you know, it, it doesn't pan out and Creeley has to come and save them. But uh, the um, the true story of the penny auctions also did involve intimidation of the bankers and, and other people who were trying to buy off the farms as well. Uh, and that's how they kept all these, um, that's how they won all these auctions and kept the prices really low. And I think that's the craziest thing to me is like, there's something about this scene that feels super outlandish. And, you know, it's obviously sort of, Uh, it's got some television magic to it. Um, but it is based in like a real life, actual historical thing. And that is wild to see portrayed on TV.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely. I mean, like around that time, I mean, that was, that was kind of the reputation of just union guys in general. I mean, they're gonna, you know, threaten to crack some skulls.
2: Yeah. It's a really cool scene. It is cool knowing that it's like historical too. I don't know. It's it's uh, definitely has some TV magic to it, like you said, but also it's, you know, not super far from like uh, like when people are doing like debt jubilee stuff and like buying up people's debts and just like forgiving them. It's, you know, not the same thing, but kind of like a similar a similar vibe to it. But it's a cool thing. It's a cool thing for a TV show to say, like, hey, remember when this happened? You probably don't, but you should remember it for some reasons. (laughs) And uh, I think that we'd be all a little bit better off if we remembered Uh, when unions intimidated bankers and didn't let them sell their houses and foreclose upon them. That's a good time. That's a good piece of American history that we need to uh, keep in our brains.
0: I think, yeah, that's, that's definitely an important lesson. I think the, I mean, what uh, I guess counts for as the, the modern left is like, um, you know, there's, uh, you know, don't dismiss use of force out of hand. Uh, Just figure out creative ways to apply it. (laughs) Um, Like, we don't need to go the tanky route and like try and do guerrilla warfare against the United States government. But, you know, uh, maybe uh, maybe rough up a banker at the bar on a. <laughs> um, I,
2: There's yeah, there's a lot going on there. That's really interesting, I think, um, with like tactics. Uh, it's also worth noting, too, that it is like Amelia's idea um which i think furthers the case that amelia is the brains of the operation (laughs) and seth is like the the guy that's ready to like uh give a good speech and put a gun in someone's back um so we get some of that too Uh, we also get some more history about um amelia and seth as well um so it's um pretty clear in this episode that they really don't know each other super well um which is probably the feeling you got from the first few episodes, right? Like Amelia is always asking Seth, like, where'd you get that uh, scar on your body? And Seth makes up some kind of weird story, right? But uh, in this one, Seth kind of like intuits that Amelia comes from money. And I think that's a very interesting moment um, where she's like educated and has manners. And, you know, he throws all these things at her Um, and Amelia is kind of, taken aback by it because she doesn't know anything about Seth uh, except for what Creeley tells her in episode two. And that becomes uh, more of a tense moment in this one.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, their dynamic is so fascinating. Uh, I I do like the idea that, um, you know, Seth is kind of like almost uh, he's the inside of their relationship. Um, you know, he's sort of just acting on impulse at every moment, which also lends a, a fascinating religious um side to to all of his character too i mean i remember looking at the uh show kind of background omnibus that tony had shared and some of the sources that he was drawing on when thinking of these characters and one of them is john brown and i mean john brown is a really fascinating character in american history but he has this like bizarre religious sensibility himself um and seeing seth uh Not being analogous to John Brown in every way, but at least in that sense where he's kind of you know he he lends his personality lends to a certain zealotry that obviously uh combined with religion can make you do something really crazy <laughs> uh that seems to be coming through, and then Amelia being the the foil to that you know somebody who's also um committed to the revolution but uh working on it at a kind of architectural or or meta or thoughtful level um you know what does all that say probably a lot i mean it reflects both of their class backgrounds in a certain way there's just so much complexity to their relationship um yeah looking forward to seeing where that goes
0: right i mean it's like uh oh man yeah you're right uh seth has that like uh that that weird like new convert glow in his eye like a mm-hmm like a little baby Christian or an ISIS recruit or something, I, um, you know, Basically like the same thing. Gonna, yes. Right. But you know, he's, you know, he right. It's that like, okay, this is me now. I need to be the best at this thing. Cause I have all this catching up to do. Uh, and then, I mean, through some other conversations, we get that it's like all about sort of redemption in general for him. And I guess, right. Like Tracy, like when he finally, uh, like tells uh, Amelia the name of the woman in the photograph and he's like uh you know I I'm trying to make up for this you know and so it's like okay so he's trying to like I think maybe first through love by meeting Amelia but then she like he absorbs uh the labor movement rhetoric through her um but now he's posing as a preacher and you can see it's like already sponging off on him like we're meeting him in the middle of their story uh and sort of reverse engineering it but uh but yeah that dynamic of like okay how do you harness that the um you know the zealotry of the new convert uh without being super destructive how do you guide that energy mm. um and it it is by yeah using Seth's talents as a speaker right. and a you know doer of violence
2: yeah so in this episode we get you know um all of the couples coming together in some kind of weird way right like Bessie and Creeley, they, they move from one type of relationship to a different kind of relationship. But um, Seth and Amelia had that same type of movement, right? At the very beginning of the episode. Right um Amelia's like you know who's this woman in this photograph that like um this weird strike breaker gave to me and he's like i don't know never seen him before in my life and then by the end of the episode he's like okay listen her name is cynthia joe Rainey, and i know her and like (laughs) she was my first girlfriend and uh and uh creely killed her and all these kinds of things right so they they go from um they go from one place to another in both of these episodes or, or both these, these like, you know, coupling up of characters, they go from one type of relationship to the other. And I think that's something that's worth paying attention to. It's a good, a good moment where they become, um, you know, um, they're, they're, they're faking it and now they're making it. Um, and <laughs> you learn about Seth and Creeley's, you know, like their, their dark past because Creeley says Seth killed this woman. And Seth says Creeley killed this woman and who knows who killed her. It's a mystery.
0: It's like a I don't know. I just think of like uh, Obi Wan Kenobi. It's like, well, I, I I mean, it was just George Lucas covering up for not knowing that there would be two Star Wars sequels. <laughs> but like, what I told you was true from a certain point of view, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I love that. Um, let's uh, switch gears really quick to Connie Nunn. Um, we haven't talked about too much yet either, just cause you know, she so far has just been like doing some crazy shit and hasn't had a whole lot of character development, but she's starting to come into her own here in episode three. Um, so Connie Nunn is the woman who in the first episode is, uh, shooting people and destabilizing things at the Harlan County strike. And then in the second episode, she murders a man who's one of the organizers of the strike. And in doing so, it turns out that his daughter was there as well. And she has this sort of, uh, you know, bizarre moment of welcoming that child uh, into her open arms at the end of that episode. And, And now we catch up with them and they're in a diner and there's this really fascinating conversation where Connie is trying to teach uh, this girl, Brittany, uh, some manners and what manners can do for you if you do them right. And also trying to teach her some pretty crazy things about the world around her, some things about good men and bad men. Um, how did that whole uh, scene strike you guys? I thought it was like a really powerful uh, moment, very sort of uh, <laughs> very troubling in lots of ways, but really fascinating.
2: Um, I hate it. First of all, thanks. Thanks, I hate it. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, I hate that Connie Nunn uh, was in Harlem County, that she killed Brittany's dad and then kidnaps her and just Uh takes her away. So I get it, though. I hate it and I get it because... Connie Nunn is not a bad person, right? She's just like motivated by a particular type of I mean, she's revenge. a bad person. Though. Well, certainly so, but not like, um, <laughs> okay, maybe let's, let's break it down in simple terms. I can understand. She's not like a chaotic <laughs> evil person, right? She's like, uh, yeah, yeah. she's a lawful evil kind of person. Um, right. In the sense oh, that she has like a really, she's, she has a really specific agenda, Based on this, like a traumatic event that happened to her, her husband being killed by, I guess, the union people. I don't really know. Um, And that, while all that is the case, right? She's not irresponsible in that badness and evilness. Um, So she, you know, is willing and thinks it's probably a righteous thing to kill these union organizers in Harlan County. Uh, But she's also not willing to abandon a child that now she has orphaned. So that is you know, a lot to consider. I'm sorry, she's an evil person. That's that's the part that I, re- right, I regret yeah. saying that. So uh, <laughs> let me it <write> <laughs> right, right now. Right. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. E- evil and bad. Uh, yeah. Um, I really like that little uh, that little line that like. Um, where she's connecting manners to like order in society. And then it's like just setting up her whole like cosmology of how like you know, workers rising up against their betters is inherently disorder and is therefore bad. And how do we counteract it? Oh, good manners and like hygiene and stuff. I mean, hygiene didn't come up, but it's the same thing. (laughs) 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 It's all in there. I don't know. It's right. I mean, it's well, Well, even with uh, Dr. Eggers Hyde, like, I mean, there's just this, you know, Oh, these workers are so filthy and we just tolerate them because we, we need them, but we're trying to like evolve past them and like eradicate them. So like, uh, I mean, hygiene was, and I mean, continues to be like a huge class marker.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean the appeal that Connie makes too, to Brittany is, you know, like what, what makes bad men bad or whatever. And she's, she's explaining, you know, very simply, that like the union was stopping these men from working and providing for their family. Right. And that's bad. Right. So it's like, that's why, that's why she's lawful evil. Right. Cause she thinks that they should just go to work and deal right. with
0: it. Right. Yeah. Which is um, a nice, uh, a nice little uh, connection to the first scene. Right. Like it's all about this idyllic middle class, like sort of nuclear family, mm. uh, you know um, which I think uh i don't know maybe even at that time wasn't even really the norm like i mean we don't we don't get like a firm picture of that until like post-war uh suburbs like the whole baby boom and stuff but
1: yeah well like this is all in the context of the great depression right so uh there's something really wild about that too but you can see the, the the architecture of the family is uh alive and well anyway the seeds are planted pretty clearly um yeah, I mean, what else is kind of crazy about Connie's conversation with Brittany is that in telling her all these things about manners and how you should comport yourself in the world and all that, uh, it becomes a really, um, you know, it's, it's all cynical. It's like you've got to do all this stuff, but if you do that, then you can get what you need to get done. Like, that's how she puts it, right? right. Um, and there's something really fascinating about that, actually, that, like, if you're going to feel to certain class sensibilities, then you can, like, take advantage of them um and that's a really fascinating thing and then that whole conversation gets punctuated by the people in the next booth getting up and you know commending her on like you know it's good to see that people are like really raising their kids right these days or whatever um and kind of just proving the point that you know you can if you if you play the part then uh, nobody knows that actually you're like a cold-blooded killer
2: yeah man i wish i had the line written down exactly but there's this part where Connie's like you know if you act in this really particular way um, you, you know, you can kind of get what you want and then you can cut the bad yeah. men down. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we should, uh, as we're kind of getting toward the, the end of the, um, the period here while we have you, especially Josh, I feel like since you're somebody who actually knows a thing or two <laughs> about um, film and television and how all this stuff works, I'm really curious to hear. I mean, I know you're only a few episodes in just like I am, but I'm curious to hear your impressions on the show as a a, an artistic piece in general you know we we attend to a lot of the narrative bits just because we're more invested in in history and that sort of a thing but i figure since we have somebody who might uh, have some insight into what's really going on here with performances and how the show is put together uh, we should try to take advantage of that i don't mean to put you on the spot but i'm I'm Uh, curious to hear what you think
0: yeah um so i i dig the show a lot and it's kind of it's kind of hitting a sweet spot for me um i'm finding as i get older i don't like good things anymore uh i like uh um let me, let me rephrase that the, the show is good but it's not like uh so in in tony's interview he's like all right deadwood and The sopranos are like 99 percent of television history to me um, right <laughs> and so like unfortunately i think the downfall of this show is that it was compared to deadwood and the sopranos um <laughs> right right because uh, I don't know. It's wildly ambitious. It's well shot, but uh, it it still has this weird sort of basic cable vibe to it. Um, like, I think a lo- there's a lot of uh, playfulness in the performances, but they don't have the sheen of like, you know, a prestige HBO or even an AMC drama. They're they're a little pared down. They're a little pulpy. Uh, and I think it suits the material. But like, I, I can really see why critics were really middling on it. Um, you know, people would I, I mean, I haven't really read anything, but it's like, OK, this show came out two years ago and I didn't hear about it.
1: I mean, I hear what you're saying, though, like uh, one thing that I loved about what Tony was saying to us in his interviews, he was like, I want to make a show where a regular person could come home from work and like crack open a beer and sit down and watch it like people that I grew up with or like my family. And those people, by and large, like, don't watch HBO, right? Like, they watch shows that are on USA. And I feel like this is, like, surprisingly uh, a wild contribution to that, like, genre of television.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I think uh, everything you said is, like, that That this show is, like, hitting on all four cylinders as far as, like, getting there. Uh, it's uh, really interesting when I found out he wrote for Longmire, um, which is a show my parents adore. Uh <laughs> like so right and i mean my parents have had to deal with uh spiels about communism and social justice just because of uh what their children have gotten up to uh, in their adulthood um but you know conceivably like had this show like gone into reruns or lasted a couple seasons wound up on netflix like it would have gotten oh you like longmar oh watch this it's another blah 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 you know uh and then, bam, they have all this like labor rhetoric uh, <laughs> being thrown at them in a, in a positive light. Um, so, yeah, it's pitched at that audience, but unfortunately, critics aren't going to respond well. They're just going to, oh, it's a Deadwood knockoff. Oh, it's a Boardwalk Empire knockoff. Oh, it's a, uh, they're going to grade it on a curve that it's not trying to hit at all
1: yeah i wonder if there's kind of a weird um like the show sort of performs the class critique as an artistic work not just as a narrative work right that like um critics don't necessarily sort of understand what the show is is aiming to do or something like that um yeah being you know bourgeois critics maybe (laughs) i don't know (laughs) right because i'm not a critic but maybe i don't know yeah and I,
0: i feel like i read a lot of criticism um but yeah uh Right. It's it's hitting this like easily digestible sort of like, oh, there's some there's some like violence, but it's not too prurient. Um, We're a little suggestive with sexuality, but we're not graphic about it. Uh, We're going to do one fuck word that probably got bleeped when it was broadcast. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. uh, But it's uh, yeah. Critics aren't good at picking up on or at least most mainstream critics that actually get published in nationally circulated, uh, publications, uh, they don't really pick up on like, um, uh, ambitiousness on like an idea level or conceptual level for the most part, or they won't give credit for it. So all they're seeing is the execution. They're like, Oh, okay. So it's playing with a few ideas, but Oh, deadwood knockoff. Um, but like, I don't know, Deadwood wasn't doing an explicit critique of capitalism. Um <laughs> Uh yeah, I think yeah. I think
2: that's a good yeah, I think that you're right. Deadwood wasn't doing an explicit critique of capitalism and neither was, you know, any other sort of period piece that has come out in the last right.
0: or, ever. Or even the su- And
2: and that's yeah, why the uh, show rocks though. That's why it's so good. Yep. <laughs> yeah like um so you know maybe uh there are probably some critical things to be said about it and that's totally chill but like yeah. um i think that i think the show know, at the like, conceptual level is really important to me at least that's why i like yeah. it so much yeah and then
0: uh as i said like uh like the performances are they're very they fit a genre tv show like yeah. it's a little bit heightened it's a little pulpy and that's perfect but it's not this like naturalistic thing that people would look for in sort of a serious period drama. And then, yeah, I, I mean, I really, I really pick up on the, uh, the enthusiasm, all the actors seem to have for these, for these roles and this dialogue and just this whole universe they're creating. Um, -hmm. but then it's also like, uh, man, uh, it's just shot so well. I mean, they've got some like, just great, like golden hour, uh, like landscape shots just to like hammer home the whole Western feel. Um, And it's supposed to be like, uh, well, the the Midwestern feel, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you know,
2: on that point, though, this is like something probably kind of small that I really like about the show. But at the beginning of every episode, after the sort of opening vignette or whatever, uh, there's always like the, you know, the damnation words appear out of somewhere unexpected. Gets uh, yeah. It gets me every time and I love it.
1: It's really like um it it feels like a comic book or something yeah. which is really neat.
2: Yeah, or like the, especially oh. the episode 3, right? Cuz there's like these like weird like black lines that shoot up in yeah. the background. Got to love it. Love that thing.
1: Yeah, it um, has like an apocalyptic feel.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Right, but it's the apocalypse that already happened, bro. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah. good realized eschatology. Um <laughs> right. But yeah, man, uh, which is all to say, I, I love it. And it's, it's really, it's really hitting a, a sweet spot for me now. Cause I'm, I'm finding, I appreciate things with, um, a lot more conceptual ambition, uh, rather than perfect execution. And not to say I don't, uh, that I outright dislike things that are, are polished and good, but, um, I, there's this whole like strata of like, middle level things that obviously had a lot of love and care put into them, but just uh, due to some like budget constraints or, you know, whatever other factor just wasn't able to like quite hit the level they were going for, but just shows a ton of promise just in there somewhere, you know?
2: Well, um, yeah, we're kind of at the, uh, the end of the hour here. So let me just, let me give you guys this one last pitch before we uh, kind of wrap things up. So, okay, so season two, right? Um, in, in the interview with uh, Tony Toast, he said that he wanted to kind of like explore some other ideas and uh, about like industrialization and the side of the capitalists. So in season two, um, they there's like a, a radio station that comes into town, right? And uh, the DJ on the radio station is none other than Frasier Crane. Okay. And that's where the show goes <laughs> after that. It's about Frasier. It's about 1930s okay, Fraser. I-
1: I can't. I can't wait for next week where you uh, you're like, all right. So uh, they all go to New York City, and there's a comedian, there, and uh, he has this crazy neighbor, and he knows two other people. It's Seinfeld.
2: But it's Depression era Seinfeld. But it's in the '30s though. That's kind of like the part that I think you're missing on this pitch.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. It's it's dirty, dusty Depression Seinfeld. <laughs> um. Okay. Uh. So
0: season two. Uh. Two best friends and uh and then the, the best friend's wife move into an apartment above the saloon, and then everyone's just obsessed <laughs> with the main guy's uh, search for a wife.
2: <laughs> it's how I met your mother in the 1930s.
1: Yeah, okay, wait, 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 I've got one. All right, so um, there's a guy, and he's a construction worker, and he has uh, three kids, and uh, one of the kids is a, a teenage boy, one kid's a teenage girl, and uh, one is just a baby. And every day he goes to work and he has this boss who's just like, oh, he's giving him the up and down. It's a huge bummer. He's just trying to live his life as a regular worker. And here's the plot twist. They're all dinosaurs. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Man, I thought you were going to say he has a, a cable access uh, TV show about, <laughs> about home improvement. He has a column in the local newspaper called Tool Time.
0: um a uh, a portly gentleman rolls into town uh and he starts up a parcel delivery service and everybody's just (laughs) astounded at how far out of his league his wife is
1: yeah yeah there's a there's a really good double crossover uh when when that part uh shows up um when this other guy comes in and uh his name's raymond and everybody loves him
2: (laughs) but uh you forgot about the the best part though it's it's the great depression
1: <laughs> depression era Raymond writing that sports column uh, is really good.
2: His bro. Oh man. Uh, Sheriff Behrman retires. His brother takes over as the town's, uh, sheriff.
1: <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, Robert Barone as the sheriff in, uh, damnation is too perfect. <laughs>
2: I think we hit our sweet spot. I think that's as good as it's going to get for this one. And we're done now. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right.
1: You know, why, why uh, push a good thing too far?
2: It's cool because I said a lot of bad ones, but we got a good one to, to end on. And that's what really matters. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well, thanks for coming on the show again, Josh. Uh, we won't wait two years before we have you back again. Okay.
0: Yeah, um, Yeah. anytime. Uh, and you guys uh, need to come on my show soon. So yeah, how about that? Yep.
2: <laughs> thanks for listening to the damn uh thanks for supporting us on patreon we really appreciate it and uh all of your hard-earned money is definitely going towards this production right here so uh maybe you'll think about changing your pledge after this episode i don't really know um
1: yeah up to a hundred dollars
2: exa- exactly for all these <laughs> these fascinating television ideas about bart samson and t- and taking people's cows um, anyways, we really appreciate you uh and giving us some money and making this happen. Um cool. So we'll see you guys next week for episode four of Damnation.